Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, February 13th. I'm Hannah Floor. Law enforcement in Ketchikan last week seized almost 15,000 counterfeit pills containing fentanyl and two pounds of meth. The bust is linked to another seizure of nearly 10,000 pills back in January. As Jack Darrell reports, it adds up to one of the largest drug busts in Ketchikan history. Altogether, the two busts were worth about $1.7 million of the drugs sold on the street. Back in January, Ketchikan police arrested Andrew Hansen after they found about a half pound of powders containing meth and fentanyl. They also seized almost $15,000 in cash, a 38 special handgun, and nearly 10,000 counterfeit oxycodone pills containing fentanyl. Hansen was still behind bars on Tuesday when detectives carried out another seizure of nearly 15,000 fentanyl pills and approximately two pounds of meth. They say it's all part of the same investigation. And according to Alaska State Troopers, the seized fentanyl is about 38,000 fatal doses, enough to kill every one of the 14,000 people on Revilla Island multiple times over. Trooper spokesman Austin McDaniel said in an email that besides Hansen, no additional charges have been filed. The flow of fentanyl into Ketchikan has become a major pain point in the community. Members of the Alaska National Guard were also in Ketchikan this week. They were deployed to brief the community on fentanyl. They held a community meeting at the Ted Ferry Civic Center. Unresponsive at this time. ETA about two minutes. The briefing began with the National Guard showing attendees a short film by Dominic Tierno called Dead on Arrival. Sergeant Elijah Gutierrez is a civil operator with the National Guard's counter-drug support program. Who here knows someone, a loved one, a relative, or just someone around who's died from overdose? Nearly everyone in the crowd put their hands up. Gutierrez then broke the news about the day's bust. 20,000 pills for Ketchikan tonight that aren't here but others are getting through. You're being targeted because a pill here costs $100 versus $10 in Anchorage. It's very lucrative to sell pills here. He said the goal tonight is prevention through education. Gutierrez referenced something a Ketchikan High School student said to him to demonstrate the severity of the situation. You can't even try it. You can't even try. You can't even try to experiment with drugs because you just don't know what's in them and you don't know if you're going to die. And I was like, job done. If a high school student knows about that, has the information and is aware of it, that's hope. The Ketchikan Wellness Coalition also took the stage to talk about youth prevention. Director Jackie Yates said the coalition uses federal grants to bring drug prevention instruction to local schools. The coalition will also be holding an event in May where parents could walk through a mock high schooler's staged bedroom and attempt to spot hidden signs of drug and alcohol misuse. One resident asked if the video was being shown at the local warming shelter to educate the homeless population. Yates says the island's homeless population is not necessarily the targeted audience. I think it's also poignant to note that the majority of people who are consuming fentanyl are actually not um, homeless individuals, which which is is really shocking as well. It is far more prevalent outside of uh, that population just based on price and access. Another concern raised was whether the local police and the National Guard are testing seized fentanyl for xylazine. That's a veterinary sedative that, when mixed with fentanyl, increases fatality. Xylazine makes naloxone, or Narcan, the standard treatment for someone overdosing on an opioid like fentanyl, not work. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration reported in 2022 that nearly a quarter of all fentanyl tested positive for xylazine. 
Keshkem Police Chief Jeff Walls said he isn't aware of any statistics on xylazine, but the fentanyl on the island is getting stronger, enough so that they increased the standard Narcan dosage administered by the island's emergency responders. We are seeing an increase in the potency of the fentanyl. Is that uh, either way, what we're looking at is it's a death sentence, you know, and that's the one getting off the street, so... The Alaska National Guard also told Ketchikan first responders that their unit can assist with the community's fight against fentanyl in the future. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. Petersburg High School hosted a basketball tournament last weekend, which was attended by teams from all across the state. The Viking boys blew through all three of their opponents with ease. They won Thursday's game against Kluwak 76-45. to Friday's game against Juno's Thunder Mountain, 66-40, to and Saturday's game against Susitna Valley from Talkeetna, 43-27. to The Lady Vikings had a harder time on the court this weekend. They lost all four of their games, but by a narrow margin. Their first game was with the Cloak Lady Chieftains on Thursday afternoon. Cloak won that game 28-25. to then the Susitna Valley Lady Rams won 39 to 35 on Thursday evening. On Saturday morning, the Cloak Lady Chieftains won 37 to 29, and the Lady Vikings played their best game of the tournament on Saturday evening during their rematch with the Lady Rams. Petersburg girls lost by just one point. The final score: 29 to 28. Petersburg's varsity teams will travel to Metlakatla this week to play against the Chiefs. KFSK will broadcast their games live on Thursday and Friday. A Kenai Peninsula man who was immunocompromised died late last month from the Alaska pox virus. That's according to a state health department bulletin released on Friday. He is the first known person to die from the Alaska pox virus and only the seventh case reported. Rachel Cassandra has more. Alaska pox was discovered in the state in 2015. It's related to other orthopox viruses like smallpox, cowpox, and monkeypox. Epidemiologist Dr. Julia Rogers works for the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and is assigned to the Alaska Division of Public Health. She says the virus usually infects animals. Orthopox viruses are zoonotic viruses, meaning that they circulate primarily within animal populations with spillover into humans occasionally. Rogers says she expects Alaska pox infections to remain rare. And she says it's unlikely someone who is not immunocompromised would die from the virus. She says there's no evidence of person-to-person transmission. The six other people who've had confirmed Alaska pox cases were all in the Fairbanks area. All of those infections were from contact with animals. Because there are so few cases, epidemiologists don't know exactly how people can get the virus. But Rogers says it's likely transmitted by direct contact with an infected animal. The Kenai Peninsula man who died from the virus lived alone in a forested area. He said he was feeding a stray cat who scratched him regularly and hunted small mammals. The cat was tested for Alaska pox and was negative. Rogers says Alaskans should wear gloves when retrieving small mammals from traps and wash their hands afterwards. If you're trapping or hunting, make sure that you're trying to avoid having any of your pets interact or make contact with these small mammals. And Rogers says anyone with lesions should visit their health care provider. 
Dr. Ben Wesley is an infectious disease specialist. He says it's important for healthcare providers to learn how to recognize Alaska pox lesions. Pox lesions are quite unusual looking, and I think most doctors that are valued in rash will say, geez, this is a weird rash. But if they haven't heard or aren't thinking about pox virus, they won't make the diagnosis. He says other symptoms can include swollen lymph nodes, especially near lesions. The Alaska pox strain found in the Kenai Peninsula man is distinct from previous cases. Health department staff say that may mean the virus is more widespread than previously thought. The man who died of Alaska pox was elderly and immunocompromised due to cancer treatment. His symptoms started with a large lesion in his armpit area. Later, he developed more pox-like lesions. Wesley says infections are rare, and Alaskans should be aware of symptoms but not worry. We live in an amazing place with contact to a lot of different wildlife and scenery, and this is just something that comes with the territory. If there are dead animals or stranded sick animals, you should not handle them on your own. You can call wildlife experts. The state recommends that healthcare clinicians be on the lookout for Alaska pox symptoms. Providers should report suspected cases to the Department of Health. They can find example images of Alaska pox lesions on the department's Alaska pox FAQ. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra. The Seca Fine Arts Camp has won a $45,000 grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. The funding has major impact. It not only will help support camp programs, it also contributes to Sika's growing arts economy. Robert Woolsey reports. Unlike many nonprofit grants, the NEA money comes with few strings attached. It doesn't require the camp to launch a new initiative or to build or repair facilities. Some years ago, um, I was actually in D.C. meeting with program officer from the NEA. You know, he said that you don't have to, like, make a new program every year. You just have to do good work. Roger Schmidt is the executive director of the camp. Getting the nod from the NEA, he says, is like getting an audit. The organization has been vetted by the nation's top arts funder and been found worthy. And for a camp that now offers programs and performances year-round, it's especially great that it doesn't have to create something new. There are so many grants where it's like, you know, we'd like to support you to come up with a new initiative. And you're like, okay, so where in the day are we coming up with a new initiative? We're kind of busy with what we got going on. Schmidt says that tuition covers only 50% of the camp's operating costs. The rest is made up through contributed income. The NEA funding is spent there and helps keep all the parts in working order. It goes into our general operations of the camp. It's part of the important side of contributed income that makes it possible everything from scholarships to art supplies to uh, hiring, um, you know, great summer staff. Schmidt says this is good for the camp and good for the community. The amount of contributed income raised by the camp annually is substantial and pays directly for the 900 meals a day the camp serves for four weeks during its summer sessions, its utility bills, sales taxes, and so on. But Schmidt says there's also leveraging. In the nonprofit sector, contributed income attracts contributed income. Although it's never been added up community-wide, the arts are a major industry. We brought in about a million dollars in contributed income each year for the last 10 years, so that's, you know, that's 10 Ten plus million dollars of of added money into the economy, and that doesn't include the indirect. You know, which is every summer we have about a, you know, almost a thousand people come into the community that are are coming because of our program. 
and you know they're not staying a few hours you've got you know our staff that are here for the anywhere from two weeks to, to eight weeks you've got our you have parents coming in uh, to see their you know to see their kids perform and present their works at the end of each camp so you know bed and breakfast, Airbnbs, hotels, restaurants. It's a really big multiplier in the economy. All this amounts to big business for Sitka, which has many successful nonprofits. And Schmidt believes we see return on the investment every day. At the end of the day, profits aren't distributed amongst owners or shareholders. Profits are put directly back into the strength of the organization and its ability to expand and grow its mission. So when we grow, we don't get richer. When we grow, our community gets richer. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. ConocoPhillips has already begun to develop its willow oil leases in the western Arctic, but environmental organizations and a group of Inupiat people opposed to the project are still trying to stop it. On Monday, attorneys for both groups of opponents argued at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that the federal agencies made mistakes when they approved the project. Earth Justice Attorney Eric Graffy argued that the government should have fully considered lower-impact options. Instead, Graffy says the agency clung to the idea that it had to allow development on the whole field and only at the end chose to trim the proposal slightly. The decision that they reached was constrained by the lack of alternatives they looked at. The group claims the agencies didn't adequately consider the climate impact Willow would have on the region's polar bears and other animals listed under the Endangered Species Act. The government's attorney said experts at the agencies did consider that an increase in greenhouse gas emissions would cause the Arctic to lose sea ice, which the region's polar bears depend on. But she said the link wasn't direct. They didn't have evidence that the specific emissions resulting from the Willow Project would shrink sea ice in this part of the Arctic, hurting this particular population of polar bears. Willow has been a flashpoint for climate activists and others who say President Biden's approval of it is incompatible with his climate goals. It's the largest new project on federal land anywhere in the country and would produce 180,000 barrels a day. ConocoPhillips attorney Jason Morgan said the Bureau of Land Management's approval of Willow was the logical result after years of careful planning and study. So how could BLM then come back and say, I know, I know we've zoned it as open to service development. I know we've issued you leases and charged you millions of dollars for these leases, but we're not going to allow you to develop this area, even though your proposal complies with all of the stipulations Willow has broad support from tribal and government leaders on the North Slope. The region is projected to reap billions of dollars in revenue sharing and local taxes over the next 30 years. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.